0: You are at the net. And welcome, friends, to another episode of the At the Net podcast, powered by TextMix Productions. Working the soundboards in the back of the house are our producers, D-Mac and Dave Cabrini. Time to say hello to your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, as they're about to take us through three sets of texts, talking life and all the news as it seems to them. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Bell.
1: Thanks to our At The Net Podcast girl, for that fabulous introduction welcome fans of The Great Game. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 37. <laughs> 37, AJ. Can you believe it? I can't believe that. At The Net Podcast with AJ Chabot. that's AJ Suh, over on my life. We're practicing good social
2: distancing tonight, aren't we? Six feet. Six uh, feet. In a tunnel between our homes. In a bunker So in, in a weird way, we kind of live together, but we kind of don't. So Do we live in a yellow submarine? <laughs> we,
1: all, we all do. <laughs> and I'm CB1. I'm Craig Bell. Uh, we are talking the great game of tennis as it seems seems to to us. Thanks also. Go out to our good amigos at Tex-Mex Productions. That would be and D. Matt McGrayer and Dave the Brain DeLeo from back of the house. who are on the sound boards moving the dials and buttons to make us sound like real people. We're real people tonight, aren't we? We're real
2: people. We're wearing masks. Yours is a little more patriotic. Mine's yes. a little bit more across the pond yes. uh, from my, our, I think, our favorite uh, tennis Turn, tournament. One yeah, of our favorites, Yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Also, be sure to check out our good work on Fireside, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor Breaker, CastBox, Overcast. Podcast, uh, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify, basically all the important communications that you kids find popular, right? Yes, thank We're on you. there. Uh, and if you'd like to be an at-the-net uh, podcast girl, well, sorry guys, we're always looking for a female voice to read the intro, aren't we? We are, and why is that, CB? Why does it have to be a woman? Uh, We're sexist. We we like women. And
2: it's too many guys (laughs) here anyway, man. I mean, yeah. Right. We're trying to get to 50% uh, women, so at least 33. I think women's voices sound much better than than men's voices. they They do. Well,
1: tonight, friends, we are going to have a great conversation with one of the true interesting People in the game of tennis that we've come across in 37 episodes. I think we might be talking until probably 10 to tomorrow afternoon. I think you know maybe with uh, Doctor Richard Cohen. Uh, Doctor Cohen is a noted psychiatrist. Yeah, he's going to analyze you tonight, AJ. Oh,
2: analyze this,
1: pal. <laughs> he's from the Philly area. Area. He's
0: like I try to turn it. I try to turn it off. while I'm not oh. doing third because it's hard enough, and it's <laughs> it's kind of a hostile gesture to judge people outside of the office. So I'm always non judgment outside of the office. Okay, but we, will, we will every have issue, So I you. try not to judge
2: anyone. You're yeah. very kind. Such a gentleman already. Uh, Dr. Cohen, he's a member
1: of the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Philadelphia. He's, he's been a, I'm going to go back and say USL T A national yes. ranked junior, not a USTA but a US L T A. Why we'll ask him here in a second about that. He was he was going uh, to... I was
0: top ten in the country way back in the sixties the you juniors. Go.
1: You were a USLTA. L T A. To go on
0: from because I had no weapons. I was just uh, I just had some mental toughness and speed. But I uh I and and back then in the sixties, four fifths of points were won on errors and uh and not on winners. So it's a lot different game right now.
1: Yes it is. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Cohen, uh, Rich played at the University of Pennsylvania. He was a Quaker before, uh, for a period of time. He had a 42 and 3 record. That's a pretty, That's pretty good record.
2: That's awfully impressive. I
1: can't and- believe you
0: lost. My, my average, I played was number five on the team. Although I was top ten in the country in the juniors, we had a very tough team. We won the Ivies a couple times, but I mainly averaged out at number five. But one match, I got, a couple guys got sick, and I played against the University of Miami, uh, who I, I played against Pat Kramer, who got to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open that day. The day before, he beat Pat Kramer one and one, and wow. didn't want to play a pusher, and I was all I was up 5-3 double match point before he woke up and started really playing and I lost one in the third. Oh. <laughs> but the point was I usually I usually played number five.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, Doctor Cohen is, is a heck of a player. Also, a couple other things that are of interest about Doctor Cohen: he played squash. Not only uh, tennis, he was the number one squash, squash player at Penn, and they were the 1960s.
0: Yeah, I think on Penn in '68, we were a national champion. Yes. Uh we beat Harvard that year. Uh, but I, but I wasn't a solid number one man. I, I was just our team was very evenly matched when I was a junior uh, at Penn, and I could in practice I could lose to the number nine man i went four and five for a national championship team at number one that year yeah, awesome. but i but i love tennis i don't love squash so i haven't played squash since college yeah. but I, I still hit every day for a couple hours right now i love tennis yeah. i have the joy of hitting it's a
1: great game oh it is it, yeah the we're best. we're going to get into that here in a second also a couple other accomplishments that we'll talk about some more he's got a couple of great kids uh, josh and julia both played. Uh, uh, tennis at the University of Miami, where they were all Americans the hurricanes and they both played on the on the tour we 'll get into that a little bit more uh, 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 Rich also coached at LaSalle University seven years uh, his team set national records for being smart they were actually really smart that 's why he didn't ever recruited me we, yeah, we going to go there
0: sixty <laughs> percent I was in school and residency, when I coached LaSalle, it was a great job. I used to, after practice, I, I went to Temple Medical School, and LaSalle was about five minutes away, and my residency was at Albert Einstein, uh-huh. which was also five minutes away, and I used to go to practice, and, and take the. I had to study a lot, so I used to take my team after practice to study, and uh, we had the highest grade point average in the country uh, one year, and 60% of my team went to medical school. That's a well, I used John, to steal weird. A lot of guys around Philadelphia uh, who are practicing medicine.
1: Also, a uh, couple of other.
0: Oh, it's also important to understand at with Sal, we didn't win many matches.
1: Well, I had no scholarship, but, but
0: we had a big time.
1: Yeah, you all won based on your smarts, not necessarily on the athletic ability. Academic right. guys, those those were uh, – that's why I didn't go. AJ, <laughs> I think you were
2: being recruited, weren't you, at one time, I, by I, at Rich? I, I love that part of the country, but I ended up going pretty far south. Yeah. I'm well, a fan of the sun yeah. and the hot weather. Also, uh, a couple of
1: interesting things to note. We'll get into this as well. We're going to dig a little deeper into this. Uh, you hold how many USTA gold balls for national father-daughter and with Julia and national father-son? <laughs>
0: It's, it's an interesting story. I have seventeen gold balls. Uh, I never thought, I, even in the juniors, when I was a to, like a really good junior, I never won a ball, and I always wanted to have one. All it, My kids were are such great players that I've won seventeen national championships, and uh, mainly due to Josh and Julia. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're both were great players. Josh was number one in the country in the juniors from age twelve to eighteen. Uh, Julia uh, was even better Uh, Josh got up to 20 in the world in the juniors Julia got to the finals of the Australian Open in the juniors Mm -hmm. She was 4 in the world when she was 18 In fact, when she was 14, she was 11 in the world Uh, She was the number one junior in the United States From age 13 to 18 in the 18s
1: that's, that's so,
0: Julia was very tough. She, she went on after college, she went on to play the pro circuit and got a top 100 in the world and has gotten to the finals of a WTA tournament. Well, but I be? made sure that both of them finished college rather than just play the pro circuit. In fact, when Julia was on the pro circuit, she got a master's degree yeah. in, in sports psychology. Mm. Yeah,
2: yes. we uh, we will definitely get to your yeah. prowess yeah. as a tennis player, as a father, as a coach, yes. and as a guy raising yeah. people who achieve things in academics and in sports. And the last thing that I th- think yes. is going to
1: find important that that uh, uh, in this introduction, you have played the longest singles point in the Guinness Book of World, World Records.
2: One hour and twenty nine minutes, AJ. That's Man. remarkable. One hour and twenty nine minutes. An hour and a half in my book <laughs> yeah. is a set th- where the tiebreaker went to. 1816, yes. and this is one point for our oh. guest tonight. I can't. can't you no, know,
0: it was that. all in the in the breaker in the third set, and it just rained, and the courts were really slow. It was 1980 at the Kenwood Club in the Philadelphia Men's Championships. I was playing against a guy named Kenny Thalen, tough player, and uh, we just kept, with the rally kept going and going and going and going, and uh, all this day the crowd was timing it. All of a sudden, it was an hour and twenty-five nine minutes in 55 seconds. Did, did, so uh, it was an amazing, team amazing team point. Team. I've always been pretty... My weapon has been my steadiness in tennis. In fact, I love hitting the ball so much that I just, in practice, I just hit. Yeah. And uh, I've I played so many matches that I don't feel I have to play sets in practice, and I want to hit more balls. So usually the first ball we hit is over an hour in, just, uh, in, in my practice sessions. So, so, so I, I usually... Play, I just play with people that have the joy of hitting, too, so we can just get the feel of the ball and hit.
1: So in that, that uh, point, did you win the point? Just out of curiosity, we'll come back to it here in a little bit, but did yeah. you win the point? I've got to know, did you win the point? You
0: know? I think I won the point, yes.
1: <laughs> I think you I great.
0: think it, I did. I think he tried to hit a drop shot and he missed it.
1: Did it, beca- a- did it become a cooperative drill at some point where you guys start yeah. figuring out? Okay, hey, wait a minute,
2: we're going to just yeah, we might I break a record uh, here. Just, this is,
0: let's just keep it I going. I didn't think that was happening, but I was just trying to play steady and win the point because it was huge. The court was really slow. It just rained, and it was would have been impossible to hit a winner on that slow, hard, true court. Yeah,
1: yeah that, that's that's muddy. amazing. So, so th- this this is Dr. Rich Cullen. We we are. Are, are really, really pleased to have uh, Rich on the show tonight, and we're going to do three sets. So how we're going to break this down, we're, uh, as I was talking to him a couple of days ago, we're going to talk about your tennis growing up before kids, and then we're going to talk about in the second set... We're going to talk about uh, Julia, Josh, kind of how how you got them to be at their level of play. So I think that's going to be a fascinating story. And then the third set, if you'll humble us and be uh, just kind of uh, play along with this, we have some pop culture questions I think are going to be a lot of fun as well. So does that sound like
0: a plan? That, that sounds like a great plan. I love it. Oh, well,
2: Thank good. you, Rich. Thank you. And uh, uh, for the folks at home who can see us, uh, we're saying hello uh, we are practicing the social distancing. Yeah, uh, we have the appropriate attire, too. He's got a good mask. Yes. Uh, a I pretty... love the attire. It's really good
0: social distancing. <laughs> I love the mask. <laughs> Thank you. <But, it>. Excellent.
2: <laughs> My mask is about to come off um, because we spend so much time together. We right. are asymptomatic, yes. healthy. And here we are. I am going to keep the Roger Fedora because it's so topical. Oh. Yeah. I, I, and we got too many compliments on it. So I'll keep it going all month um, for at least the clay season. Uh, huh?
1: th- well, I'll keep it going yeah. for a little while. Too. You too. You right. should too. Well, uh, Rich, so tell us about growing up in the uh, Pennsylvania area. Who kind of got you going? Did your mom, dad? Uh, uh, and-
0: actually, my parents are not tennis players. My dad's a physician. Uh, he was a dermatologist. uh my mom was uh they were into academics and uh they wanted me studying all the time but uh what uh they've sent me off to overnight camp when i was 5 years old and all i wanted to do was play tennis and hit all the time and i would hit against the wall for hours and uh I came back and I begged my parents to let me take tennis lessons. And they told me I could, they'd give me lessons if I if I kept on doing well in school. And so uh, I kept, I would, I, we, there was this tennis club that was right uh, down the street from me called Norbus Tennis Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, I all the men would play with me. I would go over there and beg everybody to play when I was six, seven years old. And I would play for seven, eight hours a day. I just couldn't get enough. The pro there worked with me an hour a day. My parents let him them, let them do that. And then I started entering tournaments when I was uh, nine years old. And uh, I found I, I, at the beginning, uh, the first year, like I was playing the 15s all the time, and I wouldn't win any matches. And then all of a sudden, the next year when I was 10, I started to win matches, and I learned from when you, the more matches you play, you learn how to win. And it was the, so, so I, I learned from that. Uh, I, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, I started playing national tournaments when I was 11 and, uh, uh, I fell in love with being able to play. When when I was 12, When I was twelve, I was number one in the Middle States in the 15s. When I was 13, uh, I was number one in the 15s and number two in the 18s. When I was 14, I was number one in the 15s uh, and the 18s. Uh, I, in the uh, 13s, I was nine in the country, uh, and that encouraged me to keep playing. When I was... Uh, Fifteen. Uh, I had a really good win. The guy that won the Westerns that beat Garth O'Malley. Uh, he was the number one player in California. Uh, beat Cliff Ritchie and Butch Seawagon to win the Westerns. I go off to Kalamazoo, play him in the fourth round. He's up five three in the third set. That's when this is when Kalamazoo was slow red clay. And uh all of a sudden, I only w- lose one more point, beat him seven, five in the third Incredible. and it was he was seated third at the zoo, and i had a that really encouraged me. I had a really good orange bowl, got to the semis of the orange bowl uh and uh uh I continued to love tennis, but i I was just very steady had no real weapons and was very mentally tough and was very fast. Uh I um I wanted to go to the University of Miami to continue my tennis uh but my parents wanted me to go Ivy League. So I listened to my parents. I went to Penn. Uh uh had great guys on the team. They were very bright. Uh uh, we had a really good team. In fact, my nemesis, Hubie Curry in the juniors, went with me to Penn. Uh, Hubie was uh, was number one in the country in the 14s. Uh, when he was six years old, he was a phenomena. He was in Walt Disney's movie, The Wonder Boy. It was ama- he had such game when he was six that in the 13s, he, he got to the finals of the Florida State 13s. And in Florida... That's unbelievable tennis. So Hubie, uh, he was an interesting guy. His father was the head pro at the Breakers. He oh, had goodness. such a but he didn't like tennis. He, at Penn, he, he, he was so good at best player in the Ivy League. I played doubles with him, and he didn't really come to practice. He liked to play basketball, but he was still better than anybody else. So anyway, I played Hubie seven times in the juniors. He beat me six straight times. The seventh time I played him uh, on my home courts at the Haverford School, he's up 5-3 in the third set, double match point. All of a sudden, I started attacking the net, which was very unusual for me. He was very surprised. I won the match 7-5 in the third by attacking the net, and uh, uh, that's the only time I ever beat UV. So, uh, uh, so I went, there was another guy there, the, uh, uh, Spencer Burke from St. Louis, who had unbelievable game? His uh, his uncle. Uh, he came to Penn because his uncle uh, was Gaylord Hornwell, who was uh, who was the uh, the uh, president of University of Pennsylvania back then. Uh, had a big serve in volley. Freddie Levin, who uh, who practiced dentistry for many years. Spencer was a lawyer, uh, very successful. Uh, Freddie had unbelievable game. Uh, he, uh, In fact, uh, uh, after Penn, he beat had a couple wins over Dickie Dell, uh, oh. had uh, a great competitor, great guy, the best he backhand passing shot in the Ivies, uh, and uh, uh, we had uh, uh, Clay Hamlin went there. Uh, Clay, a very successful attorney in Philadelphia, had a big serve. Uh, big serve, but uh, the best volley I've ever seen. Very clean. Uh, We had uh, a guy named Elliot Berry, who was the place kicker on the football team. Uh, One of the best squash players in the country. Usually, everybody on the tennis team played squash back then. Our coach was Al Beloy, a great guy, one of the best squash players in the world. Uh, Used to play with the Khans from Pakistan. Uh, And, uh, he, and he coached me a little in the juniors, too, and uh, we had uh, 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 just a wonderful team. We, we uh, went down and uh, beat some teams in the ACC. We beat Clemson. We, in fact, uh, we lost to Miami five-four, which was, uh, and they were, they had this winning streak back then. I think they won like over 150 straight matches. As I was saying, I, I was happy I went to Penn after I did, but my dream was go to go to the University of Miami. My parents wouldn't let me go there, but I, I wanted my kids to have that opportunity by having great tennis, and they both went to Miami, had great experiences. They were both All-Americans. Julia got up to 2 in the country in singles uh, and, uh, in Division 1 uh, Josh was, uh, actually had a high ranking of 2 in the country played number 1 there for 2 years had a great doubles partner named Luigi, who had a 140-mile-an-hour serve. He was the captain of the team. In fact, he had more wins at the University of Miami than anybody else in the storied history of the program. Wow. Interesting.
1: So Uh, did you have a chance to go to some other schools? I'm sure as uh, an accomplished player as you were, you probably had some other places besides Penn, like Harvard, Yale, Brown? Did anybody recruit to Columbia? Yeah, those kinds of Oh,
0: school? I was I was I was number two in my class academically at a place called the Haverford School, sure. which was a very uh, an excellent school. So I could have. I was recruited by Harvard. Uh, I was recruited by Stanford, but I I decided that I was top ten in the country in the juniors. In fact, my high school ranking was five in the country uh, when Cliff Ritchie was number one. Uh,
2: and, okay. yeah, I, and it's yeah. it's um it's funny you mentioned Cliff Ritchie and Butch Seawagon. Cliff is a friend of ours. Yeah. He lives down in uh, San, Angelo. San Angelo, kind of southwest part of Texas. And Seawagon, thats a name I looked up to in a big way growing up in New York. Uh, so, Legendary tennis player. Yeah, yeah, both. I got
0: some interesting stories about him both. Cliff's a great guy. I played him in the quarterfinals of National Interscholastics up at uh, Williams College. He beat me three and two. Uh, and uh just his ground strokes were just unbelievable. Uh Best topspin ground strokes I've ever played against. Yeah. Uh, really nice person, very kind. Uh, we had a long talk after the match, and after that match, whenever he saw me in tournaments, he was always very friendly to me. Butch. I played him five times in the juniors. He killed me four of the time, five times. One of the times I took a set off him, off him, off of him in Northern New Jersey. But Butch was an outstanding. A gentleman. Uh, it was just a pleasure to play with him. His his dad was a great coach. He he came to all his matches. Uh, and uh, he's a legend. He's a legend in New York. Yeah, yeah. The up-
2: whole uh, ETA or USTA Eastern, as they call him now. Yeah. Yeah,
1: he was—he was the man. Butch yeah. i didn't know him. I would never met him, but I knew his name from uh, be, being around uh, in magazines, in yeah. uh, publications. He could, yeah, Butch Wagon was a was a big yeah. thing
0: He was. It was uh, I think he was engaged or married to Catherine Ross, who was uh, in uh uh
1: Butch uh, Cassidy and the Sunday and the Kid. I just watched it last night.
0: Exactly, yes, which is very interesting, Uh, but the the guys that I used to play with in the juniors, I I played Bobby Lutz way back then, uh, who was a five-time Wimbledon champion in doubles, Uh, he blew me off the the, the courts in the Westerns, that's the biggest loss, he beat me in actually 35 minutes, he just served and volleyed me off the court, I had no chance, and that was on clay. And okay. I, I, I never had a loss like that. I, uh the I, uh, guy named Norman Holmes, which was an interesting match. I, I played him in the semifinals. In fact, it was an interesting tournament. I beat Dickie Stockton in the quarters of this tournament. In the semis, I beat Norman Holmes, love and love, in six hours. Before the match, Norman was known as the human backboard. He was from Melbourne, Florida. And, uh, in fact, they have a tennis club named after him down there. He's like a god in Melbourne, Florida. Mm. And then in the finals, I played Jeannie Presley, who that year beat me uh, – in the uh, in the Orange Bowl afterwards, in the second round, he got to the finals of the Orange Bowl in the 18th, lost to Ismail Al Shafei from Egypt, but I beat him in three sets in the in the uh, in the finals. But Norman, that was everybody always talks about that match beating him in six hours, love and love. Wow, it was a healthy college.
2: Hours. You said six hours, right?
0: Six <laughs> hours, love and love.
2: <laughs> it's it's funny you mentioned uh, Izzy Al Shafei. The other University of Pennsylvania tennis team uh, alum we've had is Ricky Meyer from... Uh, from oh,
0: Ricky! Yeah, that, that guy is probably uh, the best player, or set, him and Mary Robinson are probably the best players in the program ever. Well, yeah. maybe that's not exactly true. We had a guy named Izzy Bellis who was uh, who won Kalamazoo uh, back in the uh, 30s who was a great player. And Bill Kilton... Who oh, wow. arguably could have been top five ever in tennis? He went to Penn for a semester. He Tilden.
2: did. Bill T- I, we didn't know that. I know he yeah. won all those titles at German. But
0: and Ricky Meyer went on to be top uh, ninety in the world. Uh, yeah. Great player, Murray Robinson won the uh, won uh, won Kalamazoo. In fact, he's a neurosurgeon in Atlanta. Very bright, nice guy. Uh, I used to play with him all the time when he was 13 years old, and I was uh, I was practicing medicine then in Philadelphia, and we, we used to hit all the time. He was a great 13-year-old. I think he took his set off row back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Murray won the won Kalamazoo with a guy named Tim Wilkinson.
2: Sure. Doctor Dirt. Doctor Dirt. Doctor Dirt. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Durant,
0: yeah. <laughs> Another great guy I used to play with in the juniors. In fact, it's an interesting story. I beat Dickie Stockton back then, who was probably arguably the best junior ever, but uh, and his probably his best shot was his overhead, but I broke it down twice and beat him six four in the third, but I went up to Uh, a tournament up at Harrisburg that a great guy, Craig Mathias, ran. He always used to invite me up there. He got great players uh, in the tournament, and I drew Dickie Stockton, and uh, we were both about 55 years old, and then Dickie was like levels and levels above me. He was up six love, five love. He said, Rich, I'm not going to be aggressive. I'm just going to play you steady and give you a chance to win a game. He played me steady, and then I beat him love and won. He beat me love and won. Wow. So I won a game from Dickey back then. Wow. But before that, like, uh, you know, we we had those two really good matches back in the Juniors.
1: Let me, let me yeah. ask you a question. You, you uh, I'm thinking about this. Did you run into a guy named Russell Cleveland ever? Russell Cleveland? You remember Russell? I,
0: I know that name.
1: Uh... He's a former member at Bent Tree. I just remember as we were talking was here... Was he a student at Penn? He was. Yeah, he played tennis at Penn. On the tennis he team? He was on either. the tennis team. So I didn't know if you ever run into Russell Cleveland. Kind of a tall guy. Finan- he's in the financial world. So he did really... How really- old is he? Uh, I would say he's Seven. probably... Yeah, he's about your age. I would say it's maybe...
0: <laughs> I... You know, I have to ask some He definitely didn't play on the tennis team
1: when you were there. When right?
0: I was there, he awesome. might be a Russell. You know, it sounds familiar, but I know he didn't play in the in the four years when I was there. Okay. he might have a little bit. I didn't think. I'm just, He might have been. He might be just a little bit older and played in the early '60s because I remember his name. Yeah, he might I, be young. Yeah. He was. A, he was in my club. I played from 65 to 69 right. at Penn yeah so I don't he know who might he, it. I remember the name he might be a little older I knew uh, there was a guy named Don Cleveland who's a great guy who we played in the fathers of the Finals of the National uh, father and uh, son Clay Court and they played a good match against me and Josh we we beat him in, in, in about a three-hour match in Sarasota Florida mm. Uh uh, his son was the number two, uh, player in junior college in the country. Great person. They're very, the guy was president of Florida Tennis Association, a wonderful guy, great sportsman. In fact, he wrote me a note after the match and told us, told me how much he loved playing the match, even though he lost and, and, and how he enjoyed playing us. He was very, very gracious.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, we had, uh, in fact, I think uh, there's a uh, on YouTube. There's a copy of that match. It's really interesting. Josh played unbelievable. It's an interesting story. Uh, in the semifinals of that tournament, we, although we lost to Jimmy Parker uh, twice in the finals of the indoors, we beat him in the semis of this tournament. And Jimmy, probably a great person, probably the best senior. On the level of the yeah. best senior ever to play uh, in the world, yeah. uh, I think he has over 150 gold balls.
2: Yeah, it's ridiculous how many. You know, yeah, Jimmy he was hired from, Houston. Retired from uh, Houston. He there. lives up in uh, Santa Fe yeah. now. In fact, mm-hmm. he's teammates with a, a close friend of mine who I used to hit with all the time, yeah. who is now 55. And Jimmy is on the team with. 55-year-olds. I think it's... A oh, f- uh, yeah, up in Santa Fe? Yeah, Santa yeah. Fe, yeah. Yeah, I knew he, he was uh, down at Houston Racquet Club for, yep. forever.
1: He 20 was, years, yeah. twenty yeah, thirty like, 20, 30 Like years, you here, like yeah. Right, but uh, yeah, he, he's, he's an excellent player. I mean, you get a win off of Jimmy Parker, that's a, that's a big accomplishment. Big cause, deal. Cause he doesn't lose too many times.
0: You know, but he—I played him in a couple senior tournaments uh, uh, regularly, and uh, he beat me pretty bad. Uh, but he's—he's uh, he's very gracious, a wonderful sportsman. In fact, every time I played him, he always hits. I love hitting, so he would always hit with me after the match, and we would just play steady and keep the ball in play. Oh, oh just—he loves the game, and it was just—just just such a pleasure to be able to uh, play with him. Uh, so, uh, so, but anyway, so. But playing these tournaments, there's other interesting stories in terms of we're talking about uh, the father and sons and father and daughter tournaments. Uh, Julia and I have have won like many, we've been ranked number one in the country many years, we've won a lot of national championships, but it's interesting, the first time we played in the senior nationals, we we drew the top seed's uh, Frank Frawling in the uh, quarterfinals who got to the finals in the U.S. Open. And... It's an interesting story. Uh, Frank still was a great player, but I was stretching, and Julia and his daughter and Frank were walking towards the courts, and he didn't know who Julia was. At the time, she was four in the world juniors, and he just wanted to find out who she was. So he asked her, do you, do you play high school tennis? And she just she just said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he didn't think she was probably that good. <laughs> so he, Julia heard him whisper to his daughter, just, uh, you know, just the dad's pretty steady, just yeah. kidding. Just just isolate the daughter, will will do very well. Because he remembered me from years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's amazing he didn't figure it out, because at that time, Julia was at least five levels better than me, and he should have known that. <laughs> he, he, I never saw a ball for the first set and a half. He should have figured out in the warm-up. He kept hitting the Julia, and we're up 6-1-3-0. All of a sudden... <laughs> At that point I start seeing any every ball but we were too far ahead of them so we ended up beating them six one seven five and his his daughter got up to about 400 in the world so they never they never they won all the they never lost a match I think this could have been the only love match they ever lost
2: and rich this was Frank Froling he's been to the Wimbledon final oh, oh yeah
0: I, yeah, I think he I'm not sure. I think he might have been to the Wimbledon semis. It might have been the finals, but he did get to the finals of the U.S. Open in 1963 and lost a tough match against a guy from Mexico named Rafael Osuna.
2: Rafael Osuna. But he,
0: but he might have gotten to the finals of Wimbledon too. The guy was about six foot six yeah, and had a nerves. Yeah. And even when he was 60, his serve was still
1: great. He came. He came I remember we used to have the 35 indoor nationals at. Woodlake record called Oklahoma oh, City. Oh, Oklahoma City. Yeah. yeah, I remember Frank Furlong walking through, and I was like, "Ah, Frank Furlong." Yeah, because y'all were talking about him. Yeah, I was like, "Wow." That's- and
2: by the way, yeah. Craig must have been at least slightly influenced by Furlong. Craig is sixty and not six foot six, but massive serve still at the age of sixty. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> <No>, told <it,
0: laughs> right t- Craig also told me his son has a great serve, about one hundred th- over one hundred and thirty miles an hour.
2: Right, right. He's a tall boy, about six three. Christopher, CB two, as we call him. Yeah, yeah. Christopher's got a massive serve too.
1: Long, yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh... Uh, so when when you think
0: about Frank Frawley, he would always, which was really a world class player, he would always play the national senior tournaments, which was really nice to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot of the he would keep playing. A lot of the guys may still keep playing when we're when they're in the uh, in the thirty fives. Uh, uh, but uh, but he kept on uh, uh, going on and keep you know he kept on playing.
2: It would be like it would be like maybe not McEnroe, but somebody of that step, yeah. like Henri Leconte playing yeah. nationals, right? Yeah, like a guy who was and, top ten in the world. That
0: that's exactly right. Yeah. It was really good that these got you know, a guy like him would keep playing these tournaments, which yeah. was great to see. It would just make, make it more interesting, and would be very encouraging to keep playing them.
1: So, so I'm interested if we could shift gears just for a yeah. second. How did you get involved in, in psychology? What, what, what was the when you were a pin? What what caused you to, go, to want
0: to yeah, be a psychiatrist? A, a, I'm just really psychiatrist, curious.
2: Psychiatrist, MD, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you went deep in that, and then uh, that's after You know, in, medica,
0: in medical school, uh, I uh, I was interested in everything, and uh, I really I wanted to combine my scientific. I majored in biology and chemistry at Penn. I was an honors major in biology and chemistry, and uh, I kind of was used to academics because my parents wouldn't let me play tennis unless unless I got good grades. In fact, I would one time I qualified for the Orange Bowl, and I got a B, and my, they wouldn't let me go down there. <laughs> And so, uh, so I got this. I was it was instilled in me to study hard, and uh, I and and from tennis, one of the things I learned besides uh, being able to accept my limitations, trying hard in everything I do, uh, and which I transferred over to to academics. And I wanted my kids to have that experience too, to be able to not make excuses. I learned a lot, life lessons I learned in tennis were even more important than, than any gold balls I ever won. And so I transferred over trying hard, doing my best in everything to uh, my academics and I got one B at ten. I tried playing the circuit for two years which wasn't really the circuit back then. I played some big tournaments. I hardly won any matches uh, and uh, I deferred my acceptance to medical school for two years and then I went to med school I really was very interested in everything, uh, I studied, uh, but the thing I liked reading the most was about psychology, it was really interesting, and, uh, I, um, i uh like it was more interesting than reading about the liver for me, and I really liked I read all of Freud was when I was in medical school and it it really taught me uh, uh, people's dynamics, and I could understand uh how people got to be be the way they were, and it was very interesting to me, and I wanted to apply my knowledge. To be able to help people. Emotional kind of pain is the worst kind of pain people can have. Uh, and I have and I've, uh, so therefore, I went to an analytic residency program, uh, and I, uh, combined that with the knowledge I got in medical school. Uh, a guy in medical school named Joseph Wolpe, who was probably the second most famous psychiatrist that there ever was behind Sigmund Freud, uh, Took me under his wing. I helped him with his tennis game. Uh, He got me involved in some of his original research on uh, panic disorders and agoraphobia. He was a behaviorist who did cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I learned that. And I also, to understand people, I learned a lot about analytical. Uh, things like Freud during my residency program, I was I during my residency I went through a complete analysis, so I don't project my conflicts onto patients. And I went from there uh, to teach at Jefferson Medical College, where I was uh, had a uh, assistant professor appointment in psychiatry, otolaryngology. Where I went on rounds with the uh, chief of otolaryngology every day for about, uh, twice a week for about 20 years to help people with otolaryngological tumors, mm-hmm. tumors of the head and neck. These people were really suffering and they became very depressed, and so I tried to work with them. I also. Uh, ran the alcohol education program and had a, a faculty appointment in family medicine when I was there. I edited a textbook on substance abuse and alcoholism where I integrated alcohol into all areas of the medical school curriculum. If you think of any area of the body, if you name it, alcohol affects it, and therefore I tried to have the students think of alcohol as. Not just a separate entity. When they went through cardiology, they know about alcoholic cardiomyopathies uh, uh, with the GI tract. When they went through gastroenterology, they think about alcoholic gastritis, alcoholic hepatitis. When they studied neuro neurology, they think about alcoholic peripheral peripheral neuropathies. Alcohol is t- that when they went, uh and uh, and alcoholic organicities. So therefore, alcohol is toxic to every single cell in the body. And I integrated it into the medical school curriculum
2: Tremendous. and wrote a textbook back then. So, Rich, I must ask you: This was in Philadelphia in the mid '70s, am I correct? There. This
0: was in in uh, in in Philadelphia. Uh, in from uh, I started teaching at uh, Jefferson Medical College in 1981.
2: Okay, so early '80s. Yes. Gotcha. And
0: uh and then but I but I kept on trying to keep my tennis game up. I would yeah. hit every day for two hours throughout all because, uh and uh uh as many tournaments as i could uh, i when i was in medical school there was really no i didn't play very much for a couple years and i i missed it so much yeah. that it made me eager to be able to keep playing after i finished med school yeah and re- it, residency i did go to the times i did get to go to uh i uh, like my team's practices i used to hit with the team and I'm it was sure. now so that was when I got my, my tennis skill in back
2: then. So while you were coaching and hitting with the boys, you started to compete or you weren't quite uh, competing yet?
0: Actually, so during the summers of medical school, mm-hmm. uh, without much practice, I went and competed in the Middle States men's tournaments. I went around and uh, without much practice, just to, just to really uh, uh, to compete. And then sometimes on weekends, if it was easy re- weekend in medical school or residency, I'd go to tournaments. Gotcha. I didn't do that well back then. Uh, but, uh, but it was just a, it was a win-win situation because I would get, be able to get the joy of hitting and then, uh, be able to enjoy the competition. Right.
1: When did you ever sleep? I, I'm just curious. When you, did you like? You, are you one of these people that sleeps about two hours a night? It seems like the... no.
0: I, you, I can actually. People, if you can go through three REM cycles a night, a lot of people, can, unless you're a long sleeper, which is 15 percent of people, if you can go through three REM cycles and get about six hours of sleep with
2: three REM cycles, you can get a restorative sleep. Excellent. And, all,
1: all it is. Okay. And
2: uh, uh, while we're talking about you and your own health, um, I, I'm fascinated by your research on alcohol. Tell us about your drinking habits and, and what you believe. In.
0: Actually, actually, I don't like the I don't like the taste of alcohol. I got drunk at a fraternity party at ten, lost my match against Harvard uh, uh, the next day, Good. and I didn't understand. Uh, I felt so sick. Uh, and I, and I thought, why am I drinking this? Because I don't even like the taste of it. And, uh, and I thought to myself, this is a, oh, I was drinking maybe because everybody else was drinking and I figured this was the thing to do. And, uh, I, uh, I haven't really had a drink since then, since that fraternity party at, at back at Penn.
1: Interesting.
0: And, but, but, uh, but it's, it's really, so that's my, my drinking patterns, uh, uh, that I, I. I lost my match against Harvard. I didn't do well in an organic chemistry exam because that was the next day, too. And I thought, "Uh, this is causing more pain than pleasure for me, and I didn't even like drinking. I didn't like taste of it. So So I analyzed it out, and I thought to myself, why did I have that drink?
1: There are a few people though who do like drinking. So yeah, you're, yeah. You're,
0: you're not, but no, just... I'm non-judgmental. Yeah. If anybody likes to drink, that's fine, yeah. as as long as it's not doing any harm for you.
1: We're, we're drinking so, Topo Chico right now, so that's okay, I guess. Topo Chico, bottle, so so bottle.
0: The, the healthy personality <laughs> accepts themselves is, is and accepts others is non-judgmental. Right, and the one the thing about being a a good therapist is that. All the knowledge in the world is not going to help you unless you're accept ex- other people are non judgmental, are genuine, and uh, are empathetic. That doesn't mean be sympathetic. It means to be able to put uh, uh, put uh, people there and put yourself there in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm. I see. I see my buddy Freddie Levin. He was my doubles partner yeah. one year in college. Great guy. He just he just uh, wrote back, and he just said, "I was there at Haverford having... School the the, the, the day uh, the day I beat you, Curry." Oh, yeah, so and he...
2: also another name you mentioned a few minutes ago, Craig Matthias chimed in. He's I Craig think Craig
0: he... Matthias is a great guy. Yeah, uh, he, uh, he's been a, a wonderful friend, uh, friend of my kids very, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a dead, well, Freddie's a dent was a dentist for many years, Craig Mathias uh, is uh, a, uh, a dentist up in Harrisburg in mm-hmm. fact, he runs a $50,000 tournament called the Pennsylvania State Clay Courts uh, every year he gets great players, he gets world class players to the tournament, he contributes a lot, he, he, don, he donates a lot of money to causes from this, this tournament uh, and I played there, many Many years, in fact, I, I started before it was uh, Craig's tournament. I played back there in the early '60s. Uh, uh, I had a wonderful time there. Uh, I, I think I, I beat uh, uh, Dick Sorleen four and one, who was the second seed. And then I, uh, I had a tough match loss against a guy named Mike Green, who won, the, who won Kalamazoo and played U.S. Davis Cup when he, when he went one year out of the juniors. He mm-hmm. used to play around. He worked for DuPont, and I had a lot of good matches against Mike in the Middle States. He's from Miami, Florida. Did,
1: uh, did you, um, back to, on the psychiatry, you know, after, you, after you got out of college and you, you, know, you coach uh, the team, You get married, you have kids, and uh, how long was it? I'm just fascinated now. When did you start introducing tennis to Julia and Josh? Were they little? I
0: well, with the help of my wife, she was really, really. uh, She did a lot for these kids, and she would take them to all their practice sessions. But I started them playing at a very young age. I wanted to to be able. Junior tennis did so many great things for me and taught me so many life lessons about trying my best in everything, as I told you before, of being able to accept my limitations, to be able to not make excuses, uh, to be able to... to handle frustration tolerance, to accept any emotions that came into my head with equanimity, such as uh, aggressive feelings, to be able to control my aggressions. It taught me so many wonderful things, That I wanted my my kids to have this experience. I didn't think they'd be go on to be world-class players and anything, on, but I just wanted them to have the same experiences that I did. And I'm so proud that they became so much better tennis players uh, than I am, or ever was. They both were number one in the country in the juniors, uh, had illustrious college careers. Julia was a great pro. Josh coached the Philadelphia Freedoms for many years. Uh, he uh, coached a lot of... He coached Philopousis. He coached, co- coached Carolyn Niaki mm. He coached uh, Taylor Townsend. He, uh, he coached a guy from... Uh, 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 I'm blocking his name from South America. Who's six foot eight? Who's number one in the world in doubles? Uh, uh, Josh is a great coach. So is Julia. Uh, they both coach uh, tennis right now. They're they're both. But besides them being was great it, uh, players, the, the, they're wonderful people.
2: Rich, the they're, the South American was that Mello?
0: Yeah, that that's exactly right. Marcelo Mello. Yep. Uh, Josh had some, uh, and, uh, they, but besides them being great players, they, they, they've really developed into wonderful, caring, uh, adults or, uh, but that's probably more due to my wife, Nancy, than me. Uh, <laughs> Nancy's awesome, uh, right. But I enjoyed... uh, I've tried to be there for both of them. And Somebody's most important job is being a parent, yeah. not being a doctor or whatever your job is. Somebody's most important job is being a parent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Were you one of the parents that went to all the matches, or did you kind of let them back off You know, and, and show up at certain matches that were obviously big matches but not go to everything? Yeah, how did you yeah. approach that? Yeah, i was just interested. Well, I would have liked to have gone
0: to, uh, you know, they started traveling all around the world when they were young. Uh, and uh, I would have liked to have gone to a lot of matches. Uh, they 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 played in the Middle States until, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. Julia, Josh played in the Middle States until he was 13 years old, but he was the best 18-year-old in the Middle States. In fact, back then he could beat that. When he was 13, he could beat about most, about most every man in the Middle States. Julia, uh, he was playing uh, the... Uh, national 14 clay courts down in uh let's see this is how they ended up training in florida we always had a place in florida i bought a place at uh at uh, uh bonaventure who i we just we were visiting there uh in 1983 uh and we saw this uh they had this place called bonaventure and they had this uh house there that was uh right across the street from 30 uh, you took a bridge and you got to 32 tennis courts at Bonaventure back wow. then, and uh, they had uh, Jorge Paris was the head pro there. He had a great program going on, and I I figured okay, we'd get we'd get a uh, this house that was very inexpensive right mm-hmm. there. We didn't use it that much, and then Josh was playing. He beat Brian Baker in the clay courts, and Julia went down with her him. He was she was only eight years old, mm-hmm. and she went to. Rick Macy's Tennis Academy for that week. And Rick told her, if I get a hold of you, you're going to be the best player in the world. Wow. And so uh, High praise. I, uh, High praise uh, Macy. I like uh, to see my buddy Lenny Levy just wrote a note. And uh, great Lenny. guy. He coached uh, uh, he coached his daughter to, uh, to be a great player. Lenny uh, played uh, number one at Muhlenberg. Uh-huh. uh Played uh, the pro circuit over in Europe for a while. Uh, we used to have great practice sessions. All that Lenny never used to miss in a ball and everything. You great two, ground
2: throw. You two must have worn that first ball out, huh? You and Lenny?
0: Yeah, well, Lenny. Lenny would not miss. He just he just said hi, Richie, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he just said hello. But anyway, uh, we uh, we're talking about uh, uh, so so. Rick told uh, Julia, if I could coach you, you'll be number one in the world. Julia begged me. She said, I want to be a great pro. Please let me go down there. Uh-huh. Uh, and so Josh decided to go there, and then they uh, they trained there for a year. And then I got – Julia said, please get me the best private coach you can get me. I got her a guy named Victor Pecci. Yeah, It cost a lot of money. Victor Petey got to the finals of the French Open yes. uh, in years before, uh, and he I, coached her for two years and really helped her game. I do Sometimes remember, he would I
2: do remember uh, when Pecci lost to Borg at the French Open, yeah. That's
0: exactly right. He yeah. beat Jimmy Connors in the semis, yeah. and... Here was this. uh, Julia was ten years old then. Uh, She was, you know, she was the best ten-year-old in the country. She won the Little Mo several times, uh, internationals. uh, But anyway, she uh, when she was uh, eleven, she won uh, the uh, the twelves. And, uh, and then she went on from there to, uh, I think she was the best ITF junior in the United States when she was 13 years old. When she was 14, she was 11 in the world and seeded in all the Grand Slams.
2: And, and uh, on, on, a very, on a very personal in-the-house note, who won the family title? Was it you or Nancy? Or, or, and what age was Josh uh, and, and Julia when they started taking these
0: matches? Okay, here's the story. Uh, my, well, anyway, Nancy's a great player. She, uh, she, in fact, she has a gold ball. Yeah, I uh, so. and the great athlete. She probably started playing more tennis uh, uh, when we. Uh, I, I met Nancy when I was in med school, and uh, I helped her with her tennis game. And she's such a good athlete; she picked it up very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I, Josh. Uh, uh I played Josh in a, in a tournament when he was 11 years old and I beat him. Uh at age 12 in a practice session he started beating me when he was uh 13 I played him in the quarterfinals of uh of the uh Middle States Clay Court Men's and he beat me 3 and 2 but I thought he gave me some games. So <laughs> oh, at 13 so, it, yeah, he was real, well, he was the best in the country back then. Yeah. Uh, but at age 12, I could still beat him. At age, Julia, when she was uh, 10 years old, she won a set from me. That's And I beat her once. I won a set from her when she was 11, and I never won a set again.
2: 11?
0: Eleven. Uh, Eleven. She, uh, she, but she was actually, uh, when she was 12... And she, uh, she was the best twelve-year-old in the country. The boy that was the best twelve-year-old in the country, Donald Young. Twelve-year-old girls are better than twelve-year-old boys. Then the boys get better when they're thirteen yeah. and fourteen. Julia played Donald a set and could be could beat him that's at age twelve.
1: Interesting, Don, old Donnie Young. Yeah, wow, beautiful uh, left-handed game
2: shot.
0: they're they're the same age. They're both yeah. eighty-nine. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Well, I think they played again when uh, when they were fourteen, and Donald killed her. So, did, so that gives you an idea. Yeah. But that gives you, uh, so that gives you an idea of the family ranking.
1: So did Josh? Uh, did Josh and Julia ever play just for fun, or did you keep them away from each other and not let them play each other?
0: We practice a lot all the time, and sure. uh, and I don't think Julia's ever won. But it's an interesting story. There was did Josh. Uh, And this uh, girl uh, That he used to practice with Called uh, Jackie Carlton Who was at the top of the country in the 12s And Josh would practice They got to the finals of a mixed doubles tournament Julia was Seven years old Julia played with uh, A guy named Seth Miller Who uh, used to hit with Josh every day This was when Josh was still in Philadelphia Seth's a great guy He's the head pro at a, a club up near Princeton Julia and Seth won in a third-set tiebreaker. Wow. And Julia took bragging rights for the whole year afterwards and kept reminding him of the Josh about that win when she was seven. Julia also was a tough seven-year-old. When she was seven years old, she was ranked number one in the Middle States in the 18 doubles. Wow.
1: And that's a
0: true story.
1: At seven years of age? Yeah.
0: yeah. But Which- it's important to understand, I also... My rankings, I've had the number one ranking in the Middle States at various times in the 30s, 35s, 40s, not the 45s, 50s and 60s in
2: singles. Yeah, that's tremendous. And Rich, uh, uh, one of our past guests, we've mentioned Ricky Meyer, who I looked up to so much. Uh, Yeah, I
0: look up to Ricky Meyer. He's one
2: of my heroes. Yeah, for sure. And one of our other uh, heroes... One of our other past guests has been uh, a friend of the show, Wayne Bryan. He raised also, like you, two remarkable players who went on to play the tour in a huge way after playing at a large uh, Division I college at Stanford. The Bryan brothers' dad, Wayne, talked a little bit about, he used the word side-door motivation. With that as uh, context, I'd love to ask you, what are some of the things that you and Nancy did to reinforce the grit in a seven-year-old kid playing doubles against men.
0: Uh, I, I just told her that every uh, being on the court is a positive thing, and anything after that is fine. Yeah. And just uh, just go out there always and do your best. You don't don't you're you're not trying to win, and in that in doing your best, you're going to win a lot of matches so just go out there and try hard yeah. and anything on top of that is is a bonus That's you're going to learn so much and 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 I would would always talk to them about you can and they love playing matches so I talked to them about in order to play matches you, I want you to really have a lot of practice sessions in between and I'd say after you played matches after they calmed down after the match was over I'd ask them to tell me uh what was uh, tell me three things that you learned in this match that you could try to do better. After each practice session, I tell them to visualize one stroke that they could improve and shadow it while you're still on the court, and then that night, go back, put yourself in a relaxed state, close your eyes, feel the sun at your face, the wind at your back, at nice, breathe in through your nose and out through your match and picture yourself doing that stroke correctly. And I told him, you'll be surprised. The next day you go on the court, it'll feel any better.
2: That it'll is feel- gold, absolute gold, Richie. So,
0: so therefore, like we had all these things that we'd we'd use a lot of imagery and I'd make it fun for them. And there'd be little behavior modification things. I, I actually, uh, we could ask Josh and Julia this, but I'd never, uh, I never uh, judged them for how they were doing. Mm-hmm. I just thought there was a positive thing for them to be on the tennis court. And anything on top of that was gravy. And I wanted them to have the good experiences that I had
1: out there. Awesome. We're talking with Dr. Richard Cohen, noted uh, psychiatrist from Pennsylvania. Those of you who have just joined, uh, have been watching, uh, Dr. Cohen has uh, won 17 gold balls, national titles. Those are not easy to win. Remarkable. Uh, father of two uh, tennis professionals, uh, Julia and Josh, both played at the University of Miami and we're All-Americans and also played uh, professional tennis. Uh, it's been a great conversation thus far. So just wanted to tell everybody who, who we're talking with. Uh, thank you. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Thank you so much. I see
2: Freddie just asked me a question. Yeah, let's, said, let's address Freddie's. He said, uh, you know, you're doing great, Rich. Who was the one who gave you those lessons at Narvoth?
0: Well, when I was very young and a very little kid, a guy named Jim Kenny uh uh came over there. Then there was this guy that was the head pro at uh Philmont. I'm trying, I'm blocking his name. He would come over to Norbis and hit with me. And then it's an interesting story. When I was 13 years old, a guy named Vic Satius would come over there oh, and hit with Morty Stern. And he would—he took me under his wing. He won Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. He would hit with me once a week. A wonderful man. He was a stock. There was no pro tennis there, although then he, although he won Wimbledon, he was working as a stockbroker wow. in Philadelphia. And uh, he took me under his wing and hit with me. And he showed me that I, I used to see the things. Uh, 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 with, uh, uh, with, uh, 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 oh, yeah, uh, Glennie Levy just talked uh, talk, talk to me. He yeah. was, I mentioned his daughter, who's a great player and a wonderful person, Emma. Uh, Emma and he told me Yeah, he said her name is, He. she must have gotten married. Her name is Emma Adler, uh-huh. not Emma Levy and everything. And, and she just joined.
2: Excellent. Uh, hey, uh, when, so, uh,
0: she played number one at Tulane, a very nice girl and a wonderful player. Had great ground strokes. I uh, uh, she was the best junior back in the Middle States back in the day after Julia.
1: So mm. for, when could you tell just you know, for people watching and listening? When did you know your kids were special? I mean, I'm, you know, obviously everybody thinks their kids are special, but was there was there a tournament, an event you knew that? Uh, did you know at five years old Julia was going to be?
0: Let me answer that. I just want to finish the one thing we were talking about. The thing is, we were talking about what a great guy Vic Satius was. This was before before pro tennis. And uh, Vic was just, he he showed me a good example of work ethic. In fact, when I hit with him, he used to run around the courts at, uh, at, uh, at Norbus and i wondered why and he told me and then i started to i, I started running and uh, and i would run after when i was in my 30s and 40s each day i would run a 10k and my goal was to just run a 10k in under an hour and i did that for about 40 straight years so and we're talking about when did i could i tell my kids were special that's yeah. correct. uh well with the... With Josh, he start, I, I had him play as many I figured the more matches he played, if he tried hard, the better he would be. So he started playing men's pro tournaments when he was nine years old yeah, and nine. you know, and then he would learn from that and the more matches he played he would come back and learn from and this is a very important thing. You learn more from your losses than your wins. So I would have him play as many matches as he could, and it was a better thing for him to lose. We would talk about it afterwards. we talk about the things. If you, if you try your best, don't make excuses after you lose, and try to think what happened. You can learn from these losses, and we talk about it afterwards, and we talk about how to work on these things to get better, uh, uh, and, uh, and therefore it was, it's better to lose than to win. Sure. So, uh, so therefore, so you're asking me how I could tell he was special, well, he started, when he was 12 years old, he started winning men's tournaments in the Middle States, Crazy. and, uh, when he was saw uh, and he was saw uh, uh, at the top of the country, so I started to feel that he had a chance. He he had the best ground strokes and was the fastest player in the country back then. Yeah. He needed to develop some weapons, and he developed them down in Florida uh, when he when he started training there full time when he was fourteen. Uh, Julia, you could really tell she wanted it when she begged me to go to Macy's when she was eight. Yeah said, Make me a great player. I really want this. She, she, Josh, is a nice guy. He would always feel sensitive to his uh, opponents. Who uh, he'd feel bad for them. He was very empathetic. Julia would kill you to win a match, <laughs> and you could tell. Uh, she, she would. She told me when she was ten when she made main draw. Orange Bowl when she was 12. I really want this. Let me have it. Get me the best coach I can. I got her Victor Pecci. Mm -hmm. And you could. tell she had a fire in her belly. She just never, uh, she always, uh, she just really, really, uh, had the will to win and wanted to kill you in matches. Very very nice off the court, but on the court, she would just do, uh, she was arguably, uh, one of the best juniors ever to come out of the United States. This is not a, one of the best, not one of the best women, right. but one
2: of the juniors. Best juniors in general. This is uh, going back to Josh for a quick moment. A very personal question that has something to do with somebody that I hit with a lot. Uh, when you have a highly skilled, nice guy like Josh, how do you bring the the elements out in him that allow him to be as ruthless with a friend who's an opponent, also nationally ranked junior? versus when it's just a stranger from another country. I say this because uh, I think this is actually fairly common.
0: I think Josh Josh probably... I guess he probably did better internationally than nationally as I think about it. Yeah. And he would be very empathetic towards his opponents and be very friendly. In fact, all the other juniors would come up to me. I remember it at uh, when I went to some national tournaments and they would say, you know, Josh is, you know, the, he first, None of the other good players are that nice and mm. that, and kind to me, and and will talk to everybody. Josh would always be so kind, uh, and I, uh, I guess Josh has always always been that way. But but he was but he was so so tough off the ground and so fast that it probably didn't make any difference. I see. If, in fact, back then, like I remember, Andy Roddick would would play him ground stroke games. Although Andy, like he, Andy, would kill him uh, if they've ever played sets, because uh, 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 but Andy was down in Florida then. But they played a couple ground stroke games, and Josh came out very well off the ground against.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, twenty one, play twenty one or something like that.
0: Yeah, that they're just ground stroke games without serving. Now, if there was serving involved, he'd get killed.
1: So let's shift, shift real quick. Also, too, I want I wanted to follow up. I with
0: think, think Josh also coached Andy Roddick a couple times for the Freedoms too. Uh-huh. Back then. Oh yeah, okay.
1: no, yeah. That, that's a, a remarkable. This is a remarkable yeah. story. I, I want to get into another story yes. about yourself personally. Uh, how you became a better doctor? I was reading that article uh, oh, this, this afternoon, this, and I want to hear a little this bit is about an story.
0: Uh, I've been uh, actually it was about a year and. Uh, a month and a ha- half ago, I'm. We were the number one seed, defending champions in the National Father and Daughter Indoor Championships in Chicago, uh, job, right? and uh, we're uh, we're in the semifinals. And uh, we, uh, we we were you know I was feeling fine. I know I I had to work Thursday nights. So we went to the tournament Friday. We played uh, against a pro from Texas. Uh, a uh, very nice man, uh, Fernando Verdasco. and
2: oh, Velasco, we beat, Velasco.
0: Yeah, uh, a yeah. very nice guy. Yeah. We beat him love and love. Uh, uh, we went there, uh, we, we took a plane, and then we played him right after we got off the plane. I'm feeling fine. We go on the court uh, in the semifinals, uh, and we're up 3-0 in the first set. All of a sudden, I run for a shot that I normally get, I fall on the court. I didn't realize why. I felt I must have just slipped. They cleaned me up. There was some blood. Uh-huh. I thought I was okay. We won two games. We lost two games. I'm serving for the set at five two. All of a sudden, I was feeling more nauseous and sick than I ever have in my life. Oh. No chest pains. I I didn't have enough energy to hit a ball a foot in front of me. I ran off the court, thinking if I could just slow slow throw up, I'd be okay, I, uh, the umpire runs after me, says, get back on the court, I said, I really don't feel good, I need to throw up and lie down, uh, I, the tournament director, who was a nice guy, saw me, and the crowd, they called, the crowd saw me, I, they said, I looked white as a ghost, they called the fire rescue squad, uh, and, uh, The fire rescue squad, I told the fire rescue squad, please just let me throw up and go back on the court. They said, we're not leaving you alone. You're 72 years old, and you look horrible. I said, there's nothing wrong with me, Uh, and I'm a doctor, uh, and I I didn't think I had any problems because I was still running at 10K every day, never had any symptoms, was playing two hours of tennis a day. They said, okay, we'll leave you alone if we take an EKG. I said, okay, take it. You'll find out it's normal. I looked at the EKG. There's FP elevation. I said, rush me to the hospital. I was really in bad shape. Julia got in the, uh, just rushed off the court. Uh, I had my tennis shorts on. It's freezing in Chicago. We go to the emergency room. Uh, uh, They do... uh, They said, I I just felt so horrible. They did, uh, uh, they put us. uh, they put me to, they took me to the lab. They put a stent in, uh, and, uh, they, they released me from the hospital two days later. Josh's friend, I was, uh, uh, was sent a uh, a private jet out to get me. Uh, I probably wouldn't have made it through the hospital because the story continues. That night I was feeling sick when I got back, uh, I went over to Lankinall Hospital, which I knew had a good cardiology department. They saw me in the emergency room, uh... The guy, uh, Dr. McGeehan, uh, called me down. He ran the uh, the cardiac lab there. He said, Rich, calm down. I'm going to take good care of you. Uh, I used to watch your matches at Penn. You were my hero. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm a tennis player. I want to help you. Uh, he did a, put another stent in. They missed it in Chicago. Uh, and, and my LED artery, which is the riddle, riddle maker, was... Ninety nine percent shut off, wow. and it had uh, calcium. It was calcium in it. He couldn't. He couldn't. Uh, he couldn't uh, take put a stent in there. He introduced me to Doctor Sutter, who's the probably number one in the world in. He's the Roger Federer of uh, robotic bypass surgery. He said because there was no heart damage, my uh my uh, uh, ejection fraction was 60, which is better than normal. Uh, that means there was no heart damage. He was able to do robotic bypass surgery. It was the toughest two, two weeks waiting for the surgery I ever had. I was very anxious. He told me, he said, if I do this surgery, you're going to have a normal lifespan and you could live 25, 30 years if I don't do it and I'll get you back on the tennis court if I do the surgery. If I don't do it, you won't be able to play tennis, and Mm. you'll die in two years. Wow. Uh, So with that, it was a no-brainer to get it done, although it caused a lot of anxiety for me. No kidding. I got surgery done. It was very successful. Uh, And three I was very depressed after the surgery. I couldn't play tennis. Three weeks later, he told me I could play tennis. I'd never been clinically depressed in my life.
2: Mm. And,
0: uh... All of a sudden, the depression went away uh, after three weeks uh, uh, by getting back on the tennis court. Excellent. I got back on the tennis court, uh, and I was horrible the first time out there. I could only hit for for about 15, 20 minutes. My timing was off, played a little bit bad. I worked it up where I played a little more every day. By the summer, I was playing two hours a day and started to hit a clean ball again. Uh, and he released me to play uh, uh, a tournament six months later. I I played the national father-daughter and clay courts. Uh, Julia and I won the tournament uh, in the finals. It's an interesting story. Uh, We played uh, 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 Gildemeister and his daughter, who played number one, Nancy, who played number one at... Uh, NC State, Gildemeister got up to 75 in the world, played Davis Cup from Chile. This is Hans,
2: this is Hans Gildemeister from Chile, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, he was the head pro, I think, at some place in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Very nice man, uh, in fact, uh, uh, he got the finals, the Orange Bowl, he was telling me, and, uh, you know, played the circuit for a while, I think he got to the third round of the French, uh. Uh, we beat them in uh, in the third set tiebreaker, 10-8, uh, in a long, long rally. I think the rally lasted over five minutes. Julia finally put away a backhand volley. Uh, and, uh, in fact, after the match, I felt bad because uh, Gildemeister turned white. I went over to try to help him. They called the... Uh, the rescue squad. He had a cardiac incident because it was it was ninety five degrees on the court. I was fine, mm. but because uh, I'd been training, uh, and I, I, in fact, I called over there the next day, and he he got out of the hospital, and he's fine now too. Yeah. I was very relieved to hear that. Yeah. Rich, uh, you, you uh, need- so that- you used 10- and then uh yep. you know I've been feeling I've been running a 10k every I've been running a little bit more now because no. I can't play tennis I've just been been hitting against the wall in no. my house every day for about a half hour but I increased I was only running about 2 miles a day but I've increased it over a 10k a day because I can't
2: play tennis Rich I know uh, you I know you just ran the 10k before hitting the wall before coming to coming no, on with I ju- I just ran a 10k yeah. I
0: I ran it uh, and I tried to run it in under an hour. I ran it in, in, uh, on my treadmill in uh, 59 minutes, 57 seconds.
2: Tremendous. Hey, um, you used the word anxiety and you used the word depression uh, yes. describing some of the things you've gone through. We have heard this, uh, both of these words more and more, um, not just as tennis coaches but as people, um, in, the, in this past decade or two. And in this era of COVID-19, we are hearing these words more and more. I want to celebrate, number one, how you pointed to getting back into tennis as an effective antidepressant. Uh, I want to um, extend that to how I feel tennis can also be an anti-anxiety treatment. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on these as a... Not
0: let just me, let a me explain everything to you. Uh-huh. Depression is a pathological response to loss. Yep. Obviously, when I couldn't play tennis and I'm so invested in it, this was a real loss for me. Yeah. It's, it's 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 not just a depressed mood. You have to have a depressed and or irritable mood. Mm-hmm. But also, you have to have problems with sleep, either uh, usually uh, early morning awakening or hypersomnia, decreased energy, decreased concentration, a change in appetite, feeling hopeless and helpless, maybe withdrawn and secluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was having enough, they're called diencephalic neurovegetative signs of depression to have been given me a clinical depression for the first time in my life. It was probably good for me to experience it because I know what uh patients go through i have had anxiety in my life anxiety is usually due to an interpsychic conflict between between if we take it back the id which are basic drives and the superego which is which is probably guilt but it's good to have anxiety and people that do at least or have anxiety disorders are probably healthier than the average population because at least they've made it up to the edible stage of development yeah. to be able to be anxious. If you don't have some anxiety symptoms... You might have something called a character disorder, which means you haven't even made it up to the ethical stage of development, which is a long-standing maladaptive way of dealing with the world, mm-hmm. where the person's egocentric, comfortable with their symptoms, but make everybody around them suffer. So that's an important thing to understand. If we're given an overview of psychopathology, we're talking about. And I'll just uh, go over this briefly. There's anxiety disorders, which can develop into symptom substitution for anxiety, such as uh, obsessive compulsive disorders, phobias. There's mood disorders, which are, uh, which are either most common is depression, which is major depression or dysthymic disorders, or even bipolar disorders, which are severe mood swings. Mm-hmm. Then there is also, uh, in terms of uh, psychotic disorders, where people are out of contact with reality, not like depression and anxiety.
2: Yeah. And
0: there is uh, there is uh, the personality disorders, I told you, which are long-standing maladaptive ways of, de- of dealing with the world. And then... There is under, uh, there's, we could also, there's, as we talked about it earlier, the things, substance abuse disorders, and that's not just using uh, occasionally like you talked about having a drink or two. These are what I did uh, some of the research on when I was in, uh, uh, and ran the substance abuse education program at Jefferson Me- Medical College in the early 80s, which we were talking about. Yeah. So that gives you an overview of psychopathology
1: yeah thank you is there is there is there a tip or anything that people maybe during this coronavirus pandemic they 're somewhat uh, uh, anxious is there something that we, you know, we can do no i i, I think
0: it 's important My patients with anxiety disorders you know it 's an interesting thing and an interesting concept. My patients with anxiety disorders. Because everybody's anxious. They feel that they're not as worried about their anxiety right now and they're doing better. But it's a normal thing to be anxious right yeah. now and realize to have some anxiety is a normal thing because these are abnormal times. And symptoms of anxiety are called uh, where your sympathetic nervous system overreacts, and you get a rapid heartbeat, shortness of breath, physiological symptoms of anxiety. So that's important to understand, and it can even develop into a panic attack. Sure. Uh, if if the anxiety and sympathetic mimetic system, where you release a lot of uh, neuroepinephrine and epinephrine, mm-hmm. uh, they're called the catecholamines, from the adrenal gland, by something called the fight and fight reaction You get more anxious And these are physiological symptoms of anxiety So in summary We talked about the anxiety disorders Which are uh, which are uh, basic id versus superego conflicts And symptom substitution for anxiety Such as phobias Obsessive compulsive symptoms uh, and It's important to understand that uh Sixty percent of medical students and doctors has a have obsessive compulsive traits, uh, and that's important to understand. And then we have depression symptoms, which are uh, pathological responses to loss. When it, mood swings get really bad, and you get. Uh, and not just dysthymic disorders or major depression mm-hmm. with the diencephalic signs. We have bipolar disorders. And then also there's the psychotic disorders where where people are out of contact with reality, where they can have, uh, and they can be due to substance abuse, psychotic disorders, or schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand that the, when major depression gets so bad, you can have, uh, psychotic disorders where you're out of contact. And then we talked about the personality disorders where people aren't as healthy as people with anxiety disorders where you don't even make it up to the edible stage of development where you have a long-standing maladaptive way of dealing with the world mm-hmm. with uh, w- uh, uh, with people or are ego sentonic to. They're comfortable with these symptoms, although they make everybody else around them suffer. Uh, A bad trait you'll see where where, uh, this is the borderline personality disorder, which is very hard to treat, where people split themselves and they split other people in situations into all black and white and they can't see shades of gray. And they can't modulate their affect, so their emotions become extremes. And that's a very. You see this in in some very uh, in in our society in some very high political figures right now. Yes,
2: and and one of my questions is how,
0: so the, is it, how the important is it, understand to not see the world as black and black white and white. everything shades of gray. You know, it, 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 you're, when you treat the borderline personality disorder, it's very important to have them understand. That they could grandiose me when they come in the first session, and then they could devalue me in other sessions. Mm -hmm. And I try to let them know if they can use me as a strength of ego, that I'm not so wonderful, and I'm not so horrible, of shades of gray, and... uh, and I'm not as wonderful as you think I am sometimes. I'm not as horrible. Or, or And you're not so horrible and you're not so wonderful sometimes as you see yourself. They're sage to gray and I try to get them to modulate their
2: affect. Right, Rich, when, uh, when you are treating, let's say, a very prominent political figure on the world stage, I'm, my, my tongue is in my cheek there. Um, are you using talk therapy or prescription drugs?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm not tre- I have treated some political figures in the past. Uh, so in the past, I, and I've treated some, uh, like, well, I've, I've treated a lot of athletes, but yeah. I'm not treating any political figures at this time.
2: I meant hypothetically, and uh, how okay. would you go forward?
0: Okay. Hypothetically, I try to let them know that that they're they're not so wonderful they're not so horrible they're somewhere in between right. and situations are not so wonderful and horrible they're somewhere in between and uh and uh, uh and uh Uh, Others are not so horrible, they're not so wonderful, they're somewhere in between, and try to get them to modulate their affects.
2: Excellent. Rich, before we get to the third set, and we'll have a rollicking fun time with that one, I do want to ask one more question. I'm intrigued by your your comment about how up to 60% of healthcare professionals experience some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. I'd say
0: more medical students and
2: physicians. Ah, physicians. Okay.
0: have obsessive compulsive traits Traits. because they use these traits as positive things to be able to get through medical school because they seem to like everything to fall into place. Right. I want to.
2: I want to shift this until they learn everything. I want to shift this away from medical professionals and medical students and into tennis professionals. Uh, just an example might be Rafa Nadal, but tell us how, how, how you would estimate some well, of the things those guys are going through. That, that's
0: an interesting story because Julia, Julia, for one summer when he broke up with his girlfriend back on the circuit, went out with Nadal, uh, uh, oh, really? oh, wow. and uh, she put me on the phone with him, uh, and I said, Hi, I'm really, uh, I'm so impressed with you, yeah. and he hugged the phone.
2: Oh, he was and, like, I didn't uh, get to really he- talk to him. He was like, "Wow,
0: well, Dr, so dr. once or something
2: well dr Cohn he was, he was you...
0: friends with all the all the Spanish players way back then uh
2: was he uh w- did it sound a bit like this uh well, dr Cohn, uh, Julia is much, much hotter than me no is he's, uh, he's not even fair, no."
0: <laughs> Something like that,
2: yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Was Uncle Tony on the
1: uh, call with him? Uh, I didn't I didn't hear from him. No. <laughs> Usually Uncle Tony's always around our office, so I didn't know if he ever let <laughs> him out of his sight. <laughs>
0: he was the chaperone on all the days too. But uh, after when Josh was coaching Andy Roddick, he put me on the phone with Andy, and Andy was very nice
2: to me. Oh, nice. Hey, uh, one day when Josh and certainly when Julia is on the phone, you just let us know if I should or shouldn't do the Rafa voice for her, okay? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to let you take the lead on that.
0: Get you on here one time with Josh or Julie, I'll, I'll uh, love to do this with
1: you yeah. sometime. Oh yeah, no, yeah, we, we would love to to have another uh, performance uh, at some point uh, yeah. in the future. We wanted because we wanted to focus in on you at this point. Of course, yeah, yeah you are you this are priority, priority. Yeah, we, today, we've yeah. got a lot of gold right now.
2: Well, guys, yeah. uh, I feel like Kenny Banya in an episode of Seinfeld saying instead of Jerry, that was gold. I want to say Richie, that was gold. Let's go third set, Craig. All right, third set. All right, you ready, Doc?
1: I'm all set to go,
0: buddy. Okay. Excellent. Keep going.
1: First band you saw in concert? First band?
0: Uh, let me think. Uh, in concert. Concert, uh,
1: yes. Are you a concert the guy? The Commodores. The Commodores. They came oh. to Penn. Ooh, wow. What did you see? The Commodores, at? they came to Penn in 68. Uh-huh. Franklin
0: Field.
1: At Franklin Field. Oh, really? Yes. Yes that they were a big time band. If you could hear a band, so so let's let's take this one further. If you could hear a band, any band that you want, what band would you want to see in concert and where and you know all that kind of thing. Uh, let's
0: see. Uh, well, I'd like to see, I'd like to go to a concert with Barry
1: Manilow. Barry Manilow. Yes, we've not had Barry Manilow. That dude was he was really on top of it. I mean, he still is right now, Wait, I, think.
0: I I mean, like, I'd like to be able to. I've written a lot of songs, but I would like, but nothing on that level. He's uh-huh. such a great songwriter, and you could really feel everything he's feeling. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah he, he was, in fact, he wrote a song about tennis. Yeah, do your tennis song. I want to hear your tennis song. Yeah, let's hear it. Do
0: you want to hear it? You sure? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Okay, yeah, please. Okay, here we go. Tennis. Making spirits sublime, a game for all seasons, a sport for a lifetime. Hitting firmly, feeling in the zone, light on my feet, textbook strokes are shown. Sliding on clay, rushing net on grass, jump, anticipate. Hitting the crisscross court pass, grueling workouts, chipping approach shots, the joy of hitting and loving it a lot, reading draw sheets, a good win's what I need, anticipating rankings, then beating the top seed tennis. Making spirits sublime, a game for all seasons, a sport for a lifetime, playing the circuit, stories about the past, camaraderie with the players, friendships that always last. Winning in the juniors, then pursuing professional goals, looking forward to senior events, is what the future holds raising two children teaching them the game having good sportsmanship is more important than all of their fame tennis making spirits sublime a game for all seasons a sport for a lifetime playing for pen was the greatest thing for me. Reinventing the moon ball, then going 42 and three. Against Harvard, he ran right through the gate and hit the ball back into the court. That sealed. uh, <laughs>
2: in tennis. Sometimes that does happen in Pado, but uh, never in tennis. That's yeah. beautiful.
0: Hey, well, that another interesting I want... thing, I was playing the New Jersey State Men's Championships, and I was down 5-2 in the third, and the guy, it was a slow court, the guy hit an overhead, mm-hmm. jumped over the net, and it was pretty fa- fast back then, jumped over the net, I ran into the corner, put the ball back in the court, ran, uh, the ball went over his head, like, because he was on my side of the court, went back in the court. I think he won only two more points the whole match. That was it.
1: He yeah. uh, was
0: ready to action. shake my hand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, this, this question, the next question, I think I've already answered this yep. question on my own. Uh, if you're in a band, if you were in a band, would you be the lead guitarist, drummer, keyboards, bass guitarist? And I'm going to say... Lead
2: singer. What, what do you, you
0: think, Chris? What, what, after that well, song, I, I play the guitar a little bit. I'm not very good, oh, so, yeah. and I don't think I sing that well either. Yeah, I, okay. I think I would be. I would like to think of myself as a songwriter, although I'm not that that good at that either. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, I uh, somebody asked me uh, to. Uh, 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 to, to hear some of my songs and they said oh your songs are great we want to produce them and I gave them a little, pretty large sum of money I but my name might have been Mark Cohen rather than Richard because I was good <laughs> Mark I never heard from the guy since but another interesting story I remember I went up to a pro tournament with Josh in the Poconos it was a, a $50,000 tournament and this guy came he was on the Israeli Davis Cup team he was 192 in the world And they had an opening in the draw, and they put me in against him, uh, and he was the top seed. I think he was coming there to get the $20,000 prize money. I didn't win any points until six love, four love. All of a sudden, at, I hit a drop shot. It was a good drop shot from behind the baseline. He came charging in for it at full speed. He didn't need the point. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have lost any points to me anyway, except maybe this point. He pulled a muscle, could not walk, and he had to default to me. Oh. I'm in the second round of a pro tournament, got an ITF point, yeah. And uh, uh, when I was uh, – uh, Josh was uh, – I was about 52 years old. Josh was like uh, 15. Uh, he had a wild card in the tournament. Josh lost in the first round. I'm in the second round. I got killed i uh in the next match uh in in about forty five minutes and uh but I had a win over this guy that was one uh with winning one point was one ninety two in the world was when that, i was fifty two um,
2: rich was that oren Motevassel
0: but No, it wasn't. It was. Uh, I'm trying to think. He had two first names. I think his last name was David, and his first. I can't remember his first name. But he played two on the uh, Israeli Davis Cup team, uh, and uh, played one of the grand. Qualified for one of the grand slams that year. Mm-hmm. But he was he was an excellent player. I mean, he was blowing me off the court. Wow. He would have blown me off the court anyway. And if he was an excellent, he mm-hmm. was twenty levels above me. And in tennis, you can't beat anybody unless something fluky happens that's five levels above you. Maybe if you have a good day, you can beat somebody two levels above me. This guy was twenty levels above me. I mean, I won no points except that one drop shot at six love, four love. <laughs>
2: Tremendous
0: point. So, yeah. that, so that's an so that's an interesting story. I did have a good drop shot then when I was 52. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a a pretty good, uh, like I have a pretty good uh, interesting stroke I have. I probably have People have told me I have the best underhand serve in the world. I can mm. actually make it hit the court and go into the fence.
2: Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. We
0: have to, have if you've you have have you ever heard of my underhand serve, it's – it's uh. or if anybody's watching, they might attest
2: to it. Rich, go go to go to our Instagram. Um, one of our stories has me hitting that same shot. Maybe we can compare notes. And wow. If yours I want to see better, it. I'll, I definitely want to look at it. Yeah, if yours is better – I will practice and uh, we'll compete a little bit, even though we're nowhere near each other.
0: Well, my, there's no forward motion on my underhand serve. Right. It goes from Subway. right to left, yep. and there's no forward motion on it at all. Yeah. And it's all wrist.
2: I love it.
1: What's your favorite movie? Favorite movie?
0: Um, let's see. Uh,
1: Goodbye, Columbus. Ooh, we, we haven't had that one. Yeah, that's a new answer for us. Well that's, done. What, why do you like Goodbye, Columbus? What, what do you like about the movie? Uh,
0: just it was really, it made me laugh like anything. Uh-huh. It was really funny. Great I mean, movie. I mean, being
2: in the psychiatric profession, I'm sure you love comedy.
0: Oh, I, I love comedy. It's think. a really big break in my day, yes. Uh-huh. Uh,
2: next
1: question. This is a little bit more thought-provoking. This will be interesting to hear, hear what you say. If you had a dinner party and you could invite four or more people, at least four, who who would the four people you would invite? And it could be any time in history. It could be, you know, these are your guests. You know, four, at least four, who would you invite?
0: Uh, Sigmund Freud. Yep. Uh, Warren Buffett.
1: Uh Okay, that's a good one. I like that.
0: Albert Einstein.
1: Mm, okay.
0: And Lancelot.
2: Lancelot.
1: Sir what, Lancelot. Sir Lancelot, yes,
2: from back in the day. That's in, quite a dinner for five. And, and if we yeah. had Nancy, yeah. that's a table for six. What are you and Nancy preparing for? Let, let, Nancy, f- let Nancy come to that party, too. Oh, yeah, okay, no, we did. We did. Yeah, yeah. What, what have you and Nancy prepared for that dinner?
0: Uh, what would you be eating? She, she's Italian and she makes great Italian food.
1: Excellent. Mm. Lasagna or, or spaghetti or, you know,
0: uh, she, uh, well, she grew up on a mushroom farm in Kenneth Square and makes unbelievable mushrooms with great Italian uh, uh, pastas. Oh, that sounds
2: remarkable. And uh, I haven't had dinner, so thank yeah, you yeah, very much. Yeah, we'll come over to your house. Yeah. We
0: hey, we'll have to have you come over <laughs> to dinner sometime. It'll
2: be wonderful. <laughs> Good. All right. East Coast or
1: West Coast? Are you an East Coast guy or West Coast guy? I have a feeling I know this answer.
0: Oh, it's definitely East Coast. Man, uh, Freddie Levin uh, just wrote to me. He yep. said uh, he aced me with the first underhand survivor saw. I now use it. He, I can't read the rest of it, Freddie. Maybe, he says, it doesn't uh,
2: I now use it when I get desperate yes. <laughs> or dot, 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 when I want to do my best Nick Kyrios impression. <laughs> or Michael. <Kyrgios. laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I, I could that. go down Sorry. on that. Sorry, I added that.
0: Sorry, no. I, I did. I didn't remember that. I aced. A, I, I aced him with it. I remember. I did use it in the juniors, cool. and then I stopped using it. I think when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and then I uh, I used it once in a in a. Big match against uh, Dartmouth uh, in a in a third set tiebreaker wow. when we really when the match was four all and we really needed to win the match and and I was exhausted I don't think I ever used it in college besides that and then I didn't use it until until senior tennis
1: excellent again yeah. mountains or beach are you mountain guy or beach guy
0: uh definitely beach Beach.
1: sunrise are you sunrise or sunset.
0: Sunrise. sunrise. It's important to start off the day in a positive note. Do something positive, and then everything flows from there. And you could and you could uh, get a lot accomplished. As we were talking about depression before, yes. but by patients that are depressed, it's hard for them to do one thing in the day when you're not depressed. If you start off the day on the positive note, you can get hundreds of things done because one thing just leads to another. Yep. So that's an important thing to understand.
2: What a champion answer.
1: Thank you. Sunrise at the beach, right? The best. Yeah,
0: that would be wonderful. I'd love
1: it. What's your favorite season? Are you a summer guy, fall, winter, spring?
0: What do you like? Well, obviously summer because yeah. there's seasons in Philadelphia, <laughs> and I can play outdoor clay court tennis. I, uh, my uh, club I play at right now, Martin's Dam, is the best hard-true courts in the city. Ooh. And uh, uh, I uh, hit at least two hours every day there during the summer, and so I'm definitely a summer guy. I play uh, I hit two hours indoors during the winter. And uh, the, the courts I play at, uh, Healthplex, has an indoor track around it, and so I'll, that's where. So I used to go outside and run at, at Franklin Field. Uh, now I don't have to; that I play on these indoor courts, and there's an indoor track, and it's not banked. Five times around, it's a mile. So I, so I would run afterwards. Now I find. I ran a 10k every day for years. I find the optimal thing for running and playing tennis is about three miles. More than that, my legs get heavy, mm-hmm. and I'm not as fast on the court. But I just love running because I get high from running and high from playing tennis. Excellent. And so, if you, after the, if after if you get to be a senior, if you can find things you like doing and do them every day, do them every day if they're healthy.
1: Are you? Are you a? Uh... Like a Philly fanatic, you know, Sixers, you know, Eagles, Flyers, all the. Well,
0: well, I try. Like I've yeah, a lot of their uh, uh Josh, Josh, like uh, coaches, the guy that owns the Eagles and he goes to a lot of the Eagles games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and so, but, I, but I, have treated a lot of, uh, the Eagles and Sixers and Phillies throughout the years. Uh, cause I'm uh, like, I've, in fact, I've treated a lot of, uh, professional, uh, tennis players too. Yeah. Uh, cause sports, psych psychiatry is one of my side specialties. It's an interesting story. I treated this guy from India. I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, he, I worked with him for two weeks. He won Junior Wimbledon, but then uh, went into a. Uh uh, uh, couldn't break that. The, was about two hundred in the world. So he hit with me every day for two weeks, and I worked on mental tough with the mm-hmm. toughness. The next week, he qualified for a tournament in Japan and beat Edberg, who was three in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And I never saw him again. But I looked up his ranking a year later, and I think we had to consolidate the gains we did because he was a, he was in the low four hundreds of the world a year later. Mm-hmm. He had game. He was just too nice and too kind to to everybody and didn't really couldn't get intensity out there although he he had every shot in the world very talented guy
2: and and beat edberg one of the yeah,
1: uh one, one of the old timers yeah what's your, what's your right. favorite holiday what's your favorite holiday What's what's uh dot cohen like holiday
0: oh like. uh, let's see oh
1: uh, a lot of good ones they had a lot of good answers too
0: well, Christmas and Hanukkah are good because we celebrate them both. Uh-huh. So it's good. It's good to have both of them.
1: Yep, I agree.
0: What do you like? uh, so it's a double bonus. They double, occur about the same a time. A twofer. A twofer. Yeah.
1: What do you like to do in your spare time besides play tennis?
0: Well, I don't have that much spare time, so so I kind of use my spare time to play tennis and run
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and uh, maybe uh, spending time with my family but uh, so, but not having that much spare time because I'm still seeing uh, patients uh, I do a lot of legal psychiatry all around the country mm-hmm. Judges call, I'm a neutral witness I don't take sides I don't get paid that much money to do it but I'd rather have it that way when I first went into uh, uh, psychiatry lawyers would call me up please take this case and they'd say, you know, and I would give them an honest opinion and they yell about me because they said this ruined my case, and mm-hmm. I would make more money but so then I stop taking anybody's side, and I'm just a neutral witness so so I just read medical records and I tell the judges the truth id and I don't get paid that much money, but I feel I like can sleep at night doing that the other in psychiatry you can take anybody's side and you could be very skewed and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. So all I'll do in legal psychiatry is just tell the truth and read medical records. And So therefore the judges know they call me all boys. I get called from, I do a lot of cases in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get called all around the country, uh, all week long and then I see patients on weekends right now.
2: That's rich,
0: and I'm doing yeah. a lot of telepsychiatry right now because of the virus.
2: Yeah, it's uh, f- over the computer or telephone,
0: which, hey, which um, is a little harder because I really have to see the person yeah. in in person to really be able to get a good idea. So it takes me longer to try to to try to do that.
2: Right, the body language. Um, shifting to the next question, uh, we've had some entertaining answers out of this one. Uh, be as honest as you would with one of your cases. Um, Especially as a science guy, do you believe in the paranormal, ghosts, spirits? I'm I'm
0: open. To, I I'm open to anything. Okay. I'm non-judgmental, and uh, you know, I don't judge that. Uh, I have to see scientific. I'd like to see scientific evidence, but mm-hmm. I'm open to anything. Yep.
1: But, yeah. What about uh, extraterrestrials? Have you have you, uh, do you believe in the little green men, Klingons, Romulans? Uh, uh, I'm
0: open to anything. <laughs> I haven't seen. So if somebody you know has that that experience, uh, it's probably you know it could be there. But I'm open to anything. Yeah. But I've uh uh I've never uh like I've never experienced that myself. But if other people have, I'm open to it. But I'd like to see scientific
1: evidence. Have you ever had patients just thinking about this? Have you? Had some patients who said they've seen The Little Green Men or... Uh, go or something like that. I'm
0: just curious I, I've had patients that are psychotic that uh, that have visual and auditory hallucinations and have fixed false beliefs that are called delusions and I've also had people that have the belief in the uh, paranormal and there's there's differences so I've seen both of that clinically
1: interesting yeah I wish that would be kind of fascinating
2: when
0: said- and when and when it's due to uh, it may be if it's due to Psychosis. It's usually the, we find there, these people have uh, increased levels of certain neurohormones, hormones that are in their substantia nigra in their brain, called uh, dopamine. And we got, and I got to give them medicines called that that cause a dopaminergic blockade that are antipsychotic medicines, which can be very helpful to these people, together with supportive psychotherapy with reality orientation. Interesting.
1: Interesting stuff. This has been fascinating thus far. I mean, I've really learned a lot. I enjoy talking about the mind because the mind is just... That is No, ten,
0: of our- tennis is very important with the mind oh, absolutely. Uh, as we get back to tennis because 80% of tennis is mental toughness. Yeah. And if you could have all the strokes in the world, but if you're not mentally tough, and this has to be developed, yeah. and the way to develop it is, uh, I'll give you some techniques. Uh, okay. You have to develop your focus and concentration, and it's very important to develop this by getting laser focus and the way you do this is stay in the here and the now training yourself to really when you're on the tennis court and playing a match to stay on the court you're on the here and not think about what your buddy's doing two courts down, not what, stay, stay. don't think about what the crowd's saying, just stay focused on the point you're on. And then and there's also, you're staying on the now. Don't mm-hmm. think about the overhead you just missed two points ago. Don't think about how you're going to celebrate after you win the match in the middle of the match, because when you're up 6 2 because all of a sudden, when you think like that, the match can get away from you. Right. So stay in the here and now and develop laser focus. It's also important to understand to uh, to be able to uh, anything that happens in a tennis match to be able to get mentally tough to 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 make the wind your friend to make the sun your friend anything that happens. a challenge and not as an excuse and if you do this this is going to be a challenge for me to overcome as not to excuse anything that there's always going to be adversity during matches mm-hmm. and so therefore uh the the to, to see anything that happens is a challenge and not as an excuse so be able to do that. If the person's hooking you, I'm going to use this to a challenge to overcome, and not as an excuse. Uh, if so, therefore, and you can always, I have, I've had patients. I've treated a lot of junior tennis players that come in for mental toughness, and they tell me they're even writing scripts during the match. That's taking away from their focus. It's writing a script about why I lost this match to yeah. tell their coach while they're still in the. Tennis is a game that never ends, and therefore, is. until the last point, and yeah. you can always win. a Match and they're writing as a script to tell their coach about why they lost the match. So, which takes away from their psychic energy and takes away from their focus. Also, another thing in to develop more mental toughness is to set long-term goals and short-term goals. And I had my kids do this. And they're on the short-term goals are going to be and long-term goals are going to be in terms of technical things like I'm going to develop a role. Liable second serve yeah. in the in the in the in the next two months, technically, and therefore, how do we go about that? So we're going to go about that. I can't. We we'll, don't want you to leave the tennis court until we hit five serves in a row to the forehand side without missing, and you got to start again. Unless you do that, you can't leave the court, and you're going to do that after every practice session. Yeah. And five serves in a row to the backhand, uh, and then you're going to develop long-term and short-term goals in terms of achieving. I want to get ranked number one in my section in the short term, in the long term. I want to, in three, by three years from now, I want to start winning silver balls. So you're going to develop achievement goals long term. And uh, the long term goal uh, mechanically maybe I want to develop a, a, a solid volley where I can approach hit, approach shots and come in and, and be able to put volleys off and not be scared to be at the net. And that could be a long term goal. So always we're thinking, we, and these are labile, they're changing. You can change these goals from one day to the next. Yeah. Another thing is you got to really figure out in terms of where you are emotionally, uh, where you are technically, and where you are in preparation before you play a match. And you're going to also think about where your opponent is. And you want to really use your warm-up to look at where your opponent is emotionally, technically, and and where he may be uh, physically, and therefore, and you're never going to be a hundred percent. So you want to, unless you're in the zone, and you're going to be very rarely in the zone. Also, you want to use visualization, and visualization should be used two times. We talked about this a little before. After every practice session, visualize and shadow on the court one stroke you did wrong and you or you needed to improve, and then close your eyes and visualize it with imagery that night, and you'll be surprised when you go back on the court, you'll be better. Another thing to decrease anxiety, scout your opponent the day before you play him and visualize the night before how you want to play a big point in the match, how you want to go to your strength their their weakness. Maybe they have a chip backhand, so you want to like be, look for a short ball And you're going to visualize the night before the match going deep to their backhand, split-stepping, going in, and sticking a volley. And you'd be surprised you're going to have less anxiety and big points the next day when you play the match. It's good to have a little bit of anxiety while you play a match because you'll be able to perform. Overwhelming anxiety is going to destroy you during matches. Therefore, it's a good idea to have... uh, to have some anxiety, but visualizing the night before you play a match is going to decrease your anxiety, so it doesn't overwhelm you. And it's especially important to do this before big matches. Uh, so, therefore, and you also want to really be able to train hard enough where you'll be able to know that the matches are going to be easier than practice sessions. So, being able to focus. On the, in these practice sessions and and say to yourself this is the, for the next before you go on the practice court this is the most important thing I'm going to be doing for the next hour and a half mm-hmm. therefore I'm going to get anything you always have especially as an adult a whole bunch of other things going on. I'm going to get everything out of my head and give it everything I have to feel good about myself or on this court for for the next hour and a half. so I'm going to give it everything I have
2: such an important exercise we love your expertise your relentless positivity and the scientific approach to these mental matters we do want um to ask you the last the The last last question question this is
1: it this is the 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 icing on the top the cherry. we're putting the cherry. if you could be the commissioner of the great game of tennis worldwide worldwide if you could make a change or changes to the game what, if any, would you make to the great game? Is there something that that kind of sticks out that, if you think that we're, uh, that's absent or maybe you'd like to add to or take away? Is there something that uh, Dr. Richard Cohen thinks about all the time going to sleep? Well,
0: I, I guess you know i don't want to put my own biases on things but i think that i love watching clay court tennis i think it's the mo- i think it's a real test of whether you've got the strokes or not yes. and so i would make all the grand slams clay And because I think it's a wonderful test of if you've got game and if you really are mentally tough and if you could go the distance, it's a real test of if you've got the shots. Um, You Don't win cheap points on clay. So but that's a big bias. I I love watching clay court matches. The the more grinding there is on out there, the better I w- like watching it. Okay. I think it's a real test of character, uh a real test of mental toughness without there being two points. Uh I would uh I would emphasize uh the joy of hitting for people and uh I would have people uh play more aerobic tennis to be able to get their strokes down so they can enjoy practice sessions where hitting just where you could get the joy of hitting and let uh I would encourage that and let uh, like practice sessions where were just hitting would be an hour with one ball, so they could get uh, develop aerobically and feel uh feel better as I realized as I was saying that that we were talking about aerobics. I never finished the story about uh we just we stopped in the middle of how I became a better doctor yes, and yes. i was and I was treated i the dr Sutter. We stopped the story at that point. It was world-class in cardiac bypass surgery, did the surgery on me, yeah. got me, was so sensitive, answered all my questions. I was going through such a difficult time, and uh, Dr. McGee and answered all my questions. Their nurse practitioners did. They were so kind to me, and they spent – I had a lot of anxieties we talked about before. They they relieved all my anxiety, uh, and I was in the patient role for the first time in my life, and I had to regress – called something – regress in the service of my ego mm-hmm. and be able to be a patient and being able to take their advice. And they helped me so much that I, it made me more sensitive to my patients and wanting to be I, – I think I always was fairly sensitive, but it even made me feel that I could always do better. And I became more sensitive to my patients and I hope and being able to be more responsive to their needs and feelings since I went through such an experiencing, experiencing myself.
2: Such an important lesson. Thank you um, for for selling so it up. So
0: I realized here. I never finished that story. Yeah, you know, I, I, we
2: we actually inferred yeah. it when you were talking about the uh, the empathy it gave you uh, for your your actual patients. And uh, thanks for sewing it up and, and sort of explaining why it made you yeah. a better tennis player. I do and, want-
0: and and as I told you before, to be a, you know. The book knowledge is maybe 10% of being a good psychiatrist. Yeah. The three characteristics you have to have, and I want to emphasize this, is empathy, being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. It's not sympathy, but it's it's really being able to understand exactly how they feel, being genuine, uh, being myself as I interact with them not putting on any ears, and being non-judgmental, mm. being, being not judging them as a person, but being able to, and if you have those three traits, being non-judgmental, accepting, uh, being able to be genuine, uh, and uh, being able to be empathetic, you're going to be a good therapist. And book knowledge is maybe 10% of that. So those those are all important things to understand.
2: It really sounds like you're 80% stat about how yeah, tennis is 80% mental, uh, it's about 20% physical. That, that's
0: definitely right, and Absolutely. it's important to really, you've seen these world beaters, in practice, they, they're they machine-gunning the ball over the net. They're not getting any margin of error. They're not thinking about depth. They're just machine-gunning. They look like world-class players, and they get on the tennis court, and they fall apart. Yeah. I remember there was this uh, one guy that Josh played. He was from Australia. Josh was 18, uh, and he was up 5-1, blowing Josh off the court. He missed one ball. A forehand, and he broke two rackets, and he he just couldn't modulate his affect. And I said to Josh's coach, Mm -hmm. "You know, you'll be surprised. He was killing Josh. This guy's going to lose the match because he just couldn't keep it together. How? Why would he get that upset over missing one ball? He went into a tailspin, and Josh beat him six and one. And the guy was a world was was from Australia, about three hundred world at the time, but. Couldn't. He looked like a world beater out there. Mm. Had had big, big serve, big volley. Every, he had all the shots, but he couldn't put it together. And emotionally, so therefore, as we, the affective domain comes before the cognitive domain. You better have your emotions together before, like any thoughts come up or any of the great uh, strokes you have in the game. So these are important things to understand.
2: Well, oh, thank you, well, Doc. That was tremendous. Dr. Well done. Dr.
1: Cohen, we've taken two hours of your time, and we really appreciate you being on the uh, podcast with us this evening. What a great uh, couple hours of uh, interesting uh, talk about uh, your tennis background, your kids' tennis background, yep. your, the psychological aspect of the great game and all the pop culture questions. What a great,
2: great we, time. We learned a ton, and uh, I, I would love a teleconference lesson from you on the underhand serve, and we'll be in touch, my friend. Thank you, Rich.
0: My pleasure, you know, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Have a wonderful night, and you guys are great, and uh, I'm going to look over that underhand serve, uh, and we'll go over it okay, and uh, and I'll say hi to Josh and Julia that you're going to get in touch with them I in the future. We will. Oh, Thank yeah. you. No, no. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, if,
1: if you ever come to Dallas, we want we want you to come to Dallas. I, gonna well, be- I come, I'm going to come
2: over to your club. We're going we're to hit uh, when
0: we I get to Dallas. We uh, yes. have over
2: at, uh, where Craig is the uh, yeah, director thanks. of tennis. This is Bent Tree CC. yeah And we'll go over there and hit some, uh, like, hopefully a nice, hot, humid day and just a lot of 300
0: balls. I'd love it. That would be wonderful. We'll get got yeah. a good hitting in. Yeah. That'll be great. I, I I haven't played in Dallas. I played at River Oaks when I was younger. Yeah. They had some Houston. great, uh, the, probably the best uh, uh, red clay I've ever played on.
2: Yeah, we've got the uh, the hard true a lot here in Dallas. Yeah. So we'll we'll go out and
0: slide. And I, I remember I remember uh, the the pro over there. He was he played in the NBA. A guy named John Lucas. Lucas I used to yes. hit with him yep. when uh, he was the Sixers coach, and I would hit with John and then uh, after in fact he was really big into substance abuse problems and we used to always talk about it. I got some good hits with him. John was actually an interesting story. He was not only the uh, he was an All-American tennis player he won the NCAAs but he was also the number one draft choice in the NBA too. Just one of the best athletes I've ever played with. Very natural. Had a big serve and volley. Left-handed game. We had some good practice sessions. In fact his his son used to work out who Played in the NBA later. We used to hit, we would have him, him come out. He would hit with Josh a lot, and he would get me some great t- t- tickets to all the Sixer games. Mm-hmm. Well, like he went off in, uh, after he he all, was a pro over at River Oaks after he left the Sixers. I remember.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. John Lucas was quite, yeah. quite an
0: athlete. Uh, oh, well, unbelievable athlete! It was sports, uh, really a great experience. In practicing with him, we had well, some good times back. This was back in the nineties.
1: We'll, we'll look forward to uh, hitting some tennis balls and having some good barbecue. We'll, we'll treat you to barbecue and tennis. We'll hey, out. I'm
0: looking forward to it, buddy. I'm God. When I get to Dallas, we're going to get together and take care. It was wonderful to talk to you guys. Have take a great night. night and be safe. Take care, please, care good now. Night okay. so right, take good care. night. Bye-bye. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye.
1: All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 37 of ATHANET Podcast. 37? 37 there, A.J. Be sure to tell a friend or friends as we like your peeps and hopefully they'll like us. Also, be sure to join us for episode 38 next week with Cheryl Halpern. Oh, yeah, Cheryl Halpern from Buddy Up Tennis. You'll enjoy seeing uh, Cheryl Halpern with Buddy Up Tennis uh, next Sunday night. Uh, And that's the tennis news as it It seems seems to to us. us. Good night from Dallas, Texas. Good night, everybody. Maybe some bunker. Are we in a bunker? We're in a bunker right between
2: our homes. Okay. We'll see you later. Yeah.